selling. I'll say it. I'm selling. I don't, I don't, I don't think though that like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, see, that's the thing. You made it so black and white, buy or sell. I'm, I'm sitting on my hands. I'm dollar cost averaging a little bit, right? Welcome back to Investing Experts Podcast. I'm Daniel Snyder. Today, we're joined by Austin Hankwitz from Cashflow Freaks on Seeking Alpha. We dive into the hims and hers health earnings report that was just announced. And if he thinks the company is still a buy or now a sell after the 19% pop in share price. We also get insights of what's going on in his $2 million portfolio project that he's sharing. And I put him in the hot seat for what his game plan is for this year. Just a reminder, anything you hear on the podcast should not be considered investment advice. At times, myself or the guests might own positions in the securities mentioned. But this is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, share it with somebody. It's pretty simple to do. Hit that little arrow button in your favorite podcasting app, send it to them via text, and say, you are missing out. Now let's get to the show. Austin, always great to have you back. I got to say, I miss having you as co-host on the show, but I love that we stay in touch. We get your details of like, what's going on with the companies that you're watching, the $2 million portfolio and everything else. But let's just start things off with the people that don't know who you are. Give them a quick little recap of how you got started in investing, your background, how you started your service, and kind of what you guys do in there. Yeah, 100%. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. I do also miss co-hosting this podcast with you. But uh, yeah, so so quick, just one, two here about myself is my name is Austin Hankwitz. I'm 26 years old, so I'm not one of these veteran accolade having, you know, investors that you might see or might host here on this podcast. I'm young, right? So I have this younger mindset. Um, I'm 26. I uh, went to the University of Tennessee, got a degree in finance and uh, economics in 2018. I took that to go do mergers and acquisitions for a publicly traded healthcare company called Amedesis for about three years out of college. Um, we did about 1.2 billion uh, in deal flow over that over that time period. And you know, once the pandemic hit in 2020, I sort of had this weird desire to talk about my authentic and transparent relationship with money as it relates to investing or buying real estate or building my credit or anything and everything in between. And so instead of lip syncing and dancing on TikTok, I decided to talk about my portfolio. And turns out people really appreciated that, right? People really liked this 20-something year old at the time talking about his wins and losses, trying to pick stocks and allocation toward you know this specific index or this specific industry or sector, whatever it might. Uh, be and so that sort of turned into a, a newsletter that that I uh, got a lot of really cool um, you know sort of traction with and then I said you know what let me share these stock picks let me share these ideas let me just kind of bring this into a more formal fashion and and do that on Seeking Alpha right so that's the cash flow freaks essentially this is a service around identifying and investing into companies who are either 100% free cash flow positive they're paying and growing their dividends it's a good time. Or in, in a company here we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, sort of on the opposite side of the aisle, they're going to flip free cash flow positive in the coming 12 or 18 months, perhaps, and their share price should see some appreciation because of that. This company that you're describing right now, and for people that have been listening to this show for a long time, they'll know what this company is because you've mentioned it countless times. You mentioned it last year. We talked about it and did a whole episode on it. Then we did another episode on this company beginning in January with mm -hmm. Ralph Shaw. Mm -hmm. He gave his take. You also kind of backed it up and you're like, yes, this all makes so much sense. And now they just reported last night, Monday after the bell with incredible results. Maybe you want to give people the name of the company, what they do as a summary and what those numbers are. Absolutely. And so I just want to rewind though and give the 
credit where it's due to the the people in the beginning that I don't know when we had that episode, if it was September, October, November, whatever, but we did a whole episode pitching this company to you guys and how much we liked it, how cool we thought it was. Uh, you know, uh, Daniel had had some good pushback, some good skepticism, uh, but it, it all turned out to, to work out pretty well here. But the name of the company is Hims and Hers Healthcare, right? So ticker symbol H-I-M-S. And to kind of like give you guys the quick play-by-play -play on what happened here, the company was launched in 2017. It's a healthcare tech company. They sort of built this solution to connect people seeking medical care with the licensed providers, right? So download their app, Share your location and you're immediately offered an option to, well, the option to treat a wide range of ailments like sexual health, hair and skin, mental health, and everyday healthcare like uh, cold and flu, primary care, stuff like that, right? But if you think about this now as not just a kind of Teladoc 2.0 vibe, but also from a software uh, SaaS company in the sense of like a subscription-based model, Hims is really interesting. And that's where, to me, I got so excited about this. And the other guest, uh, I think his name was Rule, that we talked with, was also so excited. So here's what happens, right? And this is obviously applicable to people in a bunch of different and unique ways, but, but I can only speak for myself. So me personally, I am terrified of losing my hair, right? So I take a prescription called finasteride. And it's like a little 10 milligram pill every day. It just makes sure that I don't lose my hair. That so prescription is given to me as a subscription through hims and hers, right? So I pay hims every single month a uh, you know a monthly subscription amount, and in return I get my medication delivered to my door. And so I'm now, if you think about it now, to, to this kind of perspective of a SaaS company, I'm now that that customer, right? I'm now giving them the MRR, the ARR that they're looking for, and to kind of give a little bit more color as to what that average customer is is paying. Uh, during the Q4 earnings that came out just the other day here is $55 per month on average is how much the, the average subscriber pays to hims and hers uh, to receive their prescriptions. And to me, that idea of kind of saying, okay, I, we get the teledoc, we get how fun and cool that is to meet with a doctor, you know, get connected to a licensed provider, but then also say, hey, this is not just a one-time you know, exchange of goods and services and money here. This is a, now how do we get them to come back every single month, right? How do we get them to subscribe to something that we can give them? And Hims and Hers also offers, you know, we, we talked about the hair and skin, the mental health, the everyday healthcare, uh, sexual health, stuff like that. And specifically, I think what's cool about this company is the drugs that they prescribe are now at this point where they are generics in the sense that, you know, they are the, finasterides, there's, there's uh, for ED, there's tons for different birth controls, right? There's a bunch of different uh, prescription drugs that are prescribed to, to these um, patients that have margins that can kind of generate margins in the 70 to 80% for the company. So to kind of round off this whole thought of the SaaS business model, you think a SaaS company like a Monday.com or a Datadog, you know, they have margins in the 70, 80% range. They've got the monthly recurring revenue, the annual recurring revenue. Uh, they're always landing and expanding. And, you know, Hims is doing the same, but they're not a software company and they're not being priced yet as a software company, but they have all the same characteristics and margins as one. So, that's kind of just the high level breakdown there of why I'm generally excited about the company. Happy to dive deeper into the specifics as it relates to their earnings. I've got questions for you. I'm looking here at my charts and I mean, this is a stock that's up 17% on the earnings that were, was just announced, right? Brand new 52 week high. I think when we did the episode 
last year, I think it was like around a $6 share stock or maybe a little less even. Since our January episode, the stock is up like 66%. So my first question off the top, before we get into the actual metrics and some, you know, devil's advocate questions I have for you is, is this company still a buy? I think that's what people are going to ask you first and foremost, based off evaluation, they're not free cash flow positive. They're still working on EBITDA. Would you still be recommending this stock to people today? So it's, it's really funny. The short answer, yes, it's still a buy in my opinion. Um, it's really funny. I, I had shared that, you know, I think what had happened was Jeffries, the investment bank, upgraded them from a hold to a buy ahead of their Q4 earnings release about three weeks ago or so. And their stock just it, it did a great number, right? It, it went up maybe, um, I don't know, call it 15 or 20% in a day because of that. And people are like, wow, I missed the boat. It's now at $9. What do I do? Listen, at a $2 billion valuation, a company who, who will do, call it a billion dollars in revenue next year, they're trading at two times sales. Whenever we talked about this company, Daniel, they were trading at one time sales, right? And as a company who is, and you mentioned the adjusted EBITDA, they actually just reported positive adjusted EBITDA for the very first time for the quarter. So $3.9 million for Q4. And that will continue to be positive for the rest of uh, hopefully, you know, forever, right? But, you know, in 23, it's going to be positive 24, 25. Uh, and we'll get to those guidance here in a little bit. But for the person listening right now, it's like, hey, did I miss the boat? What, what is this? Do I even look at this anymore? Personally, I would say yes. I would say that it's still a buy. It's still a company to look at. It's still a company to consider because of specifically the 2025 guidance that the company uh, management team had provided us during the earnings call. And, and that specifically is revenue of $1.2 billion in 2025 and adjusted EBITDA of $100 million. All right. So then let me ask you this. We're talking about the gross profit margins being in the 70 to 80%. You mentioned it's similar to a SaaS company like Datadog, which we've also talked about before. And their whole strategy is land and expand, right? And that's kind of what you're, you're pitching here is that they get somebody buying one product and then they get them to buy two, three, four, and that's how they increase the monthly revenue, which makes sense to everybody. But how is it that a competitor, if they're, if they're just selling goods, right? Teladoc is a service company. You have to be connected with an individual that you then talk to. And that's a little bit different than just saying, hey, here's a product I'm shipping to your door every single month. Amazon does this. What is, I mean, we see Amazon moving into medical and Amazon's margins aren't even that great on that side of the business. Are you expecting any threat from Amazon in regards to making them have to start chipping away at their margin here? I love this question because when I was listening to the All In podcast, which if you guys haven't listened to that, I highly recommend listening into that. They made these, you know, there's an episode about, call it two months ago, where they made these 2023 predictions. And one of the predictions for 2023 for them was that Amazon was going to sort of lean into this third leg of healthcare, which we saw them do the $5 a month um, unlimited prescriptions. Uh, I forget the name of that specifically. I think it was like PrimeRx or, or something of that nature. But um, so that did happen, which so kudos to them. But they also said that they are not... Um, you know, ruling out the idea of Amazon acquiring a Hims and Hers or a Roman or one of these type companies and just saying, you guys have the data, you know, you have the, the, the consumer base, right? 10 million cumulative um, medical consultations, 1.04, so 1,040,000 monthly subscribers to your service at $55 a month, right? Like that is insane. You have all of these people who are already customers of you. We're just going to come in and acquire you. And it's $2 billion market cap. That's peanuts. Uh, for, for Amazon, right? So I think that to your point, could Amazon come up here and be a, a viable competitor? They certainly could. 
or they could be a buyer. But now here's something interesting that I, you know, again, this is more um, speculation than it is with data. So I just kind of like, this is my vibe that I'm getting is a lot of customers of hims and hers are people in their twenties and thirties, maybe even early forties who might not have the luxury of having the, the access to Teladoc, the company benefits that give you the, the Teladoc login and they're paying for it, right? So they don't want to pay the 150 or $200 for a consultation with a doctor on Teladoc for one time. It's just really clunky. Like they don't feel that. It doesn't resonate with them. But hims and hers has kind of structured themselves differently. They said, we want those people. We want the people who are uh, who might not have those perfect company benefits, but do still need access to everyday healthcare like birth control, hair and skin, and sexual health, right? So things of that nature is where, or people of that nature rather, is where hims and hers, I think personally, are doubling down. And they're saying, we have these million subscribers. How do we not take it to two, three, four million by 2025, 2027, 2030? And those same people, right, the people who are kind of pushing back against the company benefits and the teledocs, I think don't want to do the Amazons, right? I made a TikTok video about Amazon's $5 thing, how much money it will save a lot of people, how great of a service this is. And the comment section was flooded with people saying, I don't want Amazon having my healthcare data. I don't trust Amazon. I don't want Amazon, right? So I'm not at all saying that that's going to have any material impact on Amazon's ability to recruit people and him's ability to retain whatever, right? But just kind of feeling out the vibe here with the customers that I think that hims are going after and the same customers that Amazon wants. Um, I don't think Amazon, let me say this, I don't think hims will lose market share. So Amazon just closed the $3.9 billion acquisition of One Medical. And we know Walmart's been entering the space trying to compete with Amazon. Any thoughts on Walmart being the acquirer of Hims and moving into that side of things? That would make a lot of sense. However, the only reason that I'm leaning more towards Amazon is because about 12 months ago, maybe it was close to nine, Hims, and I, I, I could be misspeaking here as it relates to how I'm describing this, but Hims and Hers has an actual storefront on Amazon's website where you can just like shop all of their products, right? So about 12 or 18 months ago, Hims and Hers launched an app. So essentially before this, it was just a website that you could like make a consultation, do the whole like, you know, subscribe to your specific uh, prescription, things of that nature. Then they came out with the app, tons of education, which was their storefront, but they had this weird like nine month period where they didn't have an app and it was still a website, but they wanted to still sell them on. So Amazon helped them launch their own storefront on Amazon's website. So I think, and I haven't logged into it in a while, and it looks like you might be looking at it right now. So please correct me if I'm wrong here. But I think they do have this storefront on Amazon where you can shop all their uh, products and get this uh, pre prescription from a doctor and, and things of that nature. The only thing that I would think about is how Amazon's taking the cut of them, you know, whether they're, they're just fulfilling the logistics of it, you know, as Amazon likes to do. Um, but is there a way for them to streamline or sell across multiple channels to broaden their reach as their audience? Do you want to go through the underlying metrics of, of what was just announced financially on the We've done that yet. Let's go ahead and go through those. So actually, before we do that, though, I'm actually going to give a little bit more color as to what the original projections were for this year as it relates to whenever they made their public debut in, in 2020, right? So when the company hit public markets in 2020, they had a few things going for them. They had about 2 million telehealth consultations. They had 250 thousand monthly subscribers. And because they were vertically integrated, they had like, you know, 70% gross margins. Okay. So now if we look at their 2020 investor deck, they were projecting for 2022 to have revenue of 233 million gross profit of 175 million 
and negative 9 million in adjusted EBITDA loss. Um, however, that was obviously not the case for this year. This year, we saw revenue of 527 million, right? So that is way more than twice as much as what they were originally projecting. Like quadruple, right? Quadruple, Crazy. yeah, it's, it's insane. From a gross profit, I mean, their margins were 77% this year. I didn't do the math on that, but call it 440 million or so, which is way more than the 175 million. And then from an adjusted EBITDA perspective, um, you know, they were saying for the year that it was going to be negative nine. It was certainly negative for the year. However, they have flipped positive from the adjusted EBITDA perspective. But specifically now, want to talk about their operating loss and the net loss and how that has narrowed substantially year over year. So if we look at the operating loss for the year of 2022, we see a negative 68.7 million. Compare that to the negative 115 million of last year, right? And then from a net loss perspective, we saw negative 66. Million or so, and compare that to the negative 108 million last year. So, we're seeing not only a company who's growing revenue by 94% year over year, but we're all in, in flipping, you know, adjusted EBITDA positive for the very first time, but they're also narrowing their operating loss substantially, narrowing their net loss substantially. And I read here uh, earlier this morning on their uh, transcript for their earnings call that their marketing as a percent of revenue is down for the year. I believe it's like five or, or 6%, right? So they're growing substantially. They're spending less as a percent of revenue. And uh, you know, ev everything is moving in the right direction from an economies of scale perspective. Yeah, this is really interesting a company overall. I mean, it, it's something that I didn't exactly believe in last year when we first talked about it, but I mean, the company is performing. So I've got to ask you, is this company a part of the $2 million portfolio project? And why don't we just take a second as well, just tell the people that don't know what that is, what do you have going on with that? Yeah, 100%. So generally speaking here, right, I'm 26. And I'm young. And so I kind of have this luxury of being able to be aggressive with my money, as well as I'm smart enough not to be too aggressive, right? I saw what 2021 did, I saw all the crazy stuff that happened. Um, so generally speaking here, the $2 million portfolio is me saying, listen, I want to have a $2 million portfolio invested in the markets by over the next 10 years, right? I'm giving myself a 10 year shot clock to achieve this. And the goal of this portfolio, and, and again, this is more of a dividend growth portfolio per se. So more than 50%, we'll talk through the specific metrics here, but more than 50% of this portfolio is invested into dividend growth stocks. But my goal here is I want as much of this portfolio to be invested into quality, long-term, uh, you know, secular growth trend, dividend-paying companies at discounted prices, given the volatility we've seen in the markets over the last 12 to 18 months, and will likely continue to see over the next six to perhaps 12 months, who knows. Um, but I want to be investing while, the, while, while these quality companies are seeing all this volatility. And so I want to just pile as much money into companies who are not only flipping free cash flow positive, but those that are already free cash flow positive, right? I want to receive those dividends because qualified dividends are taxed much more favorably than ordinary income. And I want this $2 million in the next decade to be that awesome foundation that sets me up for financial independence by the time I'm 40 years old or so. Right on. So with this portfolio, you started it at the beginning of this year, you've been allocating funds to it. Do you have a couple of stocks in here that you might be able to share with our audience today as to what you've been buying and why you see this paying off in the next 10 years? Why these companies? Yeah, 100%. So just to kind of go through the top here and call out a few. So the first one um, that I was just super stoked to have kind of I, I, the word uh, or the phrase like, you know, beat, you know, like beat someone to the punchline there is not exactly it, but I 
I was able to get a handsome bit of Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, TSM, right, before Warren Buffett announced his uh, position. So I was really excited about that. But yeah, I mean, it's companies like that, right? Companies who are growing their dividends like crazy. I, I, can, I can positively say that the average five-year compounded annual growth rate for a holding inside of this portfolio is over 12%, right? So the goal is to be investing in these dividend growth stocks, right? So we've got Taiwan Semiconductor, we're seeing Visa, we've got a little bit of Home Depot. Now here's one that I think is interesting, or two rather, the first one that I think is interesting, and this is not yet a dividend growth stock in the sense that you think that the dividend's growing, but it's actually more of just like the growth stock side of this. And we actually talked about this stock, Daniel, uh, in one of our early episodes, Academy Sports and Outdoors right? So Academy Sports and Outdoors is a holding in the portfolio. If anyone listening right now wants to go look at their stock price over the last, call it two years, it's been going up and to the right. Like all this volatility we've seen is- We crushed that episode. I just got to give props to us. Like we, we did so well, man. So we well. did so well. So that one, that, you know, that's, that's a holding in here. And again, it, you know, they just started paying a dividend. It's not a crazy growth dividend stock just yet, very new to the markets, but from a growth stock perspective, I, I, I want access to that, right? And another one here is Williams-Sonoma, right? Growing dividend like crazy. Uh, but then we also have REITs. So we have a couple of REITs in here. And, and you know, it's very common that REITs aren't exactly growing their dividends at a crazy amount. So, you know, we have VICI properties, very into gaming and, and things of that nature. We have Realty Income Corporation, the company everyone listening right now, I'm sure has heard of, ticker symbol O. If you rewind, I think on their website, it says since like 2002, or since the last 20 something years on their investor relations websites, uh, they've they've performed some 14 and a half or 15% compounded annually, uh, which in their data has outperformed the S&P. I like the consistency. I like the dividend. So that's, that's kind of where that came from. And again, we've got the WP carry, the VICI, AMTO. And then also that we have these special circumstance ETFs that I think are, are more kind of there to offer diversity of income. So we've got companies like JEPI, JEPI, we've got QQQX, right? We have these companies who are writing covered calls against their underlying positions in the S&P and, and the NASDAQ and generating more of an income, right? So as it relates to dividend income, it's coming from a bunch of different ways. Now, as we think about the, the $2 million portfolio as a whole, it's hard to achieve true growth, just betting on dividend stocks in general, right? So, and again, I'm young, so I want to have exposure to technology, both on the tried and true side, when you think of like Apple and Salesforce and Microsoft and Google and Amazon, but then also on the more riskier side, companies like Hims and Hers, Monday.com. So from an allocation, we've got 50% now in these dividend companies, because I do want to own a lot of equity in companies who are paying and growing dividends that will continue to be these qualified dividends for me over the next decade. But I also want to see the upside from investing in something that I believe in wholeheartedly, which is technology over the next 10 years. And so um, from a long technology perspective, it's about 25% allocation, right? Those big tech companies. And then from a risky technology perspective, it's about 20% allocation, leaving us about 5% left to be parked in SCHD. So let's start with this. Main question I have for you is... Are any of these stocks set up on a dividend reinvestment program or are you taking the income and taking that tax hit and then reinvesting? Good question. So as of today, they're all set up on the dividend reinvestment program. However, they I do not have them set up to be reinvested in themselves. Instead, they're reinvesting in the strategy as a whole. Right. So they're reinvesting into the like all the money that I'll make. I think my my uh, my broker here is telling me I'll make as of right now about $18 in dividends this quarter. 
And so those $18 will not be reinvested into the specific names, but instead back into this general strategy of 50% in the, in the dividend growth, 25 in technology, 20 in riskier technology, and 5% in SCHD. And if people want to see this portfolio that you put together, can they find that on Cashflow Freaks? Is it up there ready for them? It is. It's all up there ready for them. It's all integrated into the back end as it relates to Seeking Alpha's marketplace service. Uh, you'll get access, obviously, to the portfolio. There's a bunch of tabs inside. So I know how I explained that might have been a bit confusing. So I, I break it down by sort of uh, characteristic, right? So I break it down if it's a REIT. I got a whole REIT tab and I've got my REIT research, all the fun stuff as it relates to those. Or if it's uh, maybe these long risky stocks that I'm excited about, we have a whole tab for that uh, research for every single one of those uh, as it relates to the holding and, and my investment thesis. Yeah, I was going to say you have the research library tab here and you even put in the Seeking Alpha Quant ratings just so it's there. That's right. right? That's right, yeah, man. That's awesome. There's another question I wanted to ask you. Specifically, you pointed out Taiwan Semi, right? And we saw recently in the most recent Berkshire 13F forum that they've started selling a significant portion of that company. I mentioned it uh, on a previous episode as well with Bertrand. Are you still fully invested, full camp TSM for the long run? I am, right? Because if you think about like just the general secular growth trend of semiconductors, like as a $440 billion company, like they fit perfectly inside of that. And, and a lot of that, you know, everything as it relates to where the industry is going, they're going to ride that tailwind just fine. To me, and I actually had a question from someone that was like, hey, listen, like the actual share prices of these names might be down a little bit. Like, are you worried? Like what's going on? You know, we've seen volatility over the last couple of weeks now. It's like, at the end of the day, no, right? Because there's a long, you know, 10-year time horizon that I'm that I give myself to invest in these companies. But it's also this dividend growth that I'm so excited about, right? So if we look here into Taiwan semiconductors from a dividend growth perspective, that's 10% compounded annually for the last five years. And, and who knows where that's going to go in the future. Generally speaking, there will be instances. And oh, here's a great instance. Here's a wonderful instance of me saying that I was wrong and got out of it. 3M. I don't know if you remember that episode that we had. Oh my gosh, what happened to that stock? So I, as of like, I think it was yesterday, traded in my 3M position, uh, which I was down 25 or 30% on, um, which at, the, at its core is not a dividend growth stock, but you know, back to this idea of companies who are paying and growing their dividends for the long-term, really wanted that diversification. Uh, traded that company in for WW Granger. GWW is the ticker. Uh, they're expected to do awesome EPS over the next uh, several years here. But um, yeah, so that's that's where it's like, hey, hands up, I got it wrong. I I'm moving out. We're we're doing something different, right? I love when you say that though, because like a lot of people want to come on and talk about all their winners, and they never talk about their losers. And it's like the whole thing is we all have losers, right? It's just managing the risk side of things. And, and 3M, I mean, that episode that we did about the lawsuit and everything else going on there, I mean, it, it's, it's a big overhang for the stock. So it kind of makes sense, but bravo to you for owning it. I know our audience always appreciates when they hear the, the real real on the episode as well. So I want to move it away from the, the portfolio here and let's start talking about the overall markets, right? People are looking at these overall market levels while we're recording this, you know, the, the S&P 500 has been balancing around this 4,000 psychological level for seems like a quite few days now. Overall market, not just individual stocks, even though I'm sure somebody could come on and say it's a stock picker market, as we know, but overall market levels, are you a buyer at these levels or you think it's still time to sell? Gosh, that's such a black and white question. I love it. Um, overall market. I'm gonna make you pick too. You got. Yeah, no, I will. Um, overall market at at thirty nine ninety three for the S and P five hundred. All right, so here's the game plan, right? I'm a big believer that because rates are going to be higher for longer, 
because what we've seen with the ISM manufacturing and sure services bounce back, and but who knows if that's now start of a new trend. Uh, inflation jumped up uh, in January, right? We're not seeing things go perfectly to plan as they were three months ago, right? With this new data, I think as, as rates stay higher for longer, all the things I just mentioned, we're going to see continued volatility in the markets in 2023. And I'm not sure if that's going to go away by the end of the year, by next summer. I don't know what that timeline is, but what I do know is history, right? And history tells us that the last five times that the consumer price index has been above, I think it was 6%, maybe it's 8%. Um, I, can, I can find the statistics here for you. It was like 1953, 19, uh, two times the 1970s, once the 1980s, and literally just last year. The unemployment rate had to spike above 6%, and we had to have a recession before inflation would come back down to actual, the, the historic 2%, right, 2.5%. We've yet seen that. And the labor market is very strong. But then if you look at the housing starts and the permits that have been granted, uh, those are plummeting right now. However, Construction, you know, employment is still um, up and still steady. But if you look back at the last four times that it did plummet, construction employment also plummeted, right? So maybe that's a forecast for what could be happening with the what could be coming later this year with unemployment. I just I do not think that we're out of the woods just yet. I am selling. I'll say it. I'm selling. I don't. I don't. I don't think though that like I'm. I'm not. I'm not. See, that's the thing. You made it so black and white, buy or sell. I'm, I'm sitting on my hands. I'm dollar cost averaging a little bit, right? But I'm not saying, all right, we're out, we're out of the weeds. Bull market's here. Let's, let's load the boat. That's not how I feel. How I feel is I will continue to do this whole stock pickers market thing, right? I'll find the hymns. I'll find the companies who are paying and growing their dividends. Like I'll continue to do that and bet big on those companies while also being a net buyer of assets, generally speaking, as it relates to the markets, but not in a very aggressive way. Now I'll give you that answer. That's a good, that's a good wrap up at the end there, because really it's all about like first half, second half story, maybe, maybe it's quarter by quarter. I mean, we were talking with Eric on, on last week's episode about him looking six months ahead and what he's seen as well from the housing data and service data and then sticky inflation, all that stuff. Like anybody that's listening right now, you should go listen to that episode that Eric had. I mean, he laid it out. Yeah. Eric's amazing. He's a great guy. And he, his research is, is phenomenal. 10 times better than mine. He is awesome. Everyone go listen to him for sure. Um, but what about this PE multiple? Are we, if you're saying that you're, you would be a seller right now, is it a multiple story going on in the overall market if interest rates are higher for longer? Yeah, I think, I think it is multiple, right? Because like, if you think back to the last couple of bear markets we had, and I don't have the, the data in front of me, but I remember uh, you know, kind of seeing the numbers of how the PE multiple has contracted from like, call it, I don't know, 17 times down to like 13 or like 18 times down to like 14, but like every single time that we've had a bear market before we've seen a bottom, you know, it's really contracted down this 13, 14 range. And I think the lowest we ever got was in October and it was like 16 and a half or 17 times. Right. And, and to me, as, as we listen to these earnings calls from companies like Walmart or Home Depot or, uh, you know, Target here, I think probably just came out. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm sure it's going to be the same story in the sense that, you know, we're seeing continued inflation. Our earnings are going to be down, things of that nature looking forward. It's like, Okay, so we're, you know, I don't know the P ratio right now. I'm assuming with the S&P, it's around called maybe 18 and a half, 19. Maybe you have the number in front of you. Um, but, you know, why are we trading at some sort of premium if the companies who are embodying, I would argue Walmart is very much what retail is and Home Depot is very much what retail is, right? These companies that are embodying what retail is going to look like and what the consumer mindset and more specifically what corporations are going to be reporting and are looking at and guiding to over the next call it nine months. If those are not great, then why are we putting a 
you know, frothy valuation on top of something that is not great. I, I don't understand that, right? So I think that the PE multiple needs to come down to this, call it 14, 15 times before we really see a bear market bottom. But, you know, as it relates to finding that bottom, what I, something I'm more looking at is the economic indicators, right? I, I want to see the ISM manufacturing data turned around, right? Where we're still nosediving. Sure, the, the services has, has, has moved from, I think it was like 49 up now to 55, but that was one month. Like what, what's the trend, right? I want to see these very specific, I want to see the ISM data turn around because if you think about it, you know, I saw a chart from a guy named David Marlin who was able to sort of pull together what, um, historically speaking, over the last call it three decades of how the S&P 500 has performed in bear markets to find those bear market bottoms in relation to the ISM data. And the chart that he shared, I don't know if it was one that he created or something that Bank of America, one of these banks had created, but essentially it was saying that the ISM data has been the best predictor of where these stock market bottoms are, because once that sort of trough has been created and we're moving back up in the right direction, then it's safe to assume that either if we saw a bottom, that was the bottom, or there would be, there's going to be a bottom here pretty soon. So I'm, I do care about valuations. I do care about PE multiples and things of that nature for the S&P 500. But to me, it, it really just comes down to like, what's the economy doing? Because to be quite honest, like, you know, and we've heard this quote a hundred times, but the market, the market can be you know, crazy much longer than you can be solvent, right? The market was crazy in 2020, 2021. 2022 is sort of like a, a, you know, a snapback to reality. But even we saw this crazy bear market rally to start the year, right? Like, there's going to be some times where the market goes absolutely nuts when you kind of look around in the economy and the data comes out. It's like, wait, inflation's higher than we thought. People are unemployed or this is happening. Housing starts ABCXYZ. So that to me is what I'm more focused on versus like the PE multiple. But as someone who is a net buyer of assets, obviously I do want to keep an eye on the PE multiple of the market. Some people out there are saying, well, the, mul the multiple is still frothy because the bond market is predicting the cuts further down the road, and therefore they're, they're assessing the risk in that standpoint. And you had sent over these charts about the two-year yield. Uh, why don't you kind of just break down for us what we're looking at within these, within these charts? All right. So essentially, if you, if you look at these two charts, the first chart is the two-year note bond yield. And that, now we're looking at almost 4.8% yield on the two-year. And historically speaking, we have this awesome chart by uh, Bank of America. And, and what they've done is they've sort of overlaid the S&P 500 market bottoms on top of the two-year yield. And a trend that you might see that I think is very apparent um, in this is before the market has bottomed and truly seen a bottom and, and we turned around, we're back off to the races, the two-year yield has peaked and fallen by at least 50 basis points, right? We, it, You could argue that we might have seen that peak in November, right? When it was trading around this, call it 4.75, and then it came down to almost four, right? That would have been the 50 basis point mark, but now we're even seeing higher highs in the two years. So I would argue that that is probably invalid at this point. Um, so generally speaking, the bond market's telling us that the, the you know, that the market hasn't bottomed yet. Uh, there's a ton of housing data that's telling us unemployment's going to be uh, skyrocketing for, as it relates to construction. I mean, there's so much data that is pointing, you know, ISM data. There's so much data that's pointing to we're not out of the woods just yet, which is keeping me on the sidelines, generally speaking, right? I'm still nibbling here. I, I'm, I'm investing in net buyer of assets, but I'm not saying, all right, guys, I'm in, I'm, you know, doing everything I can to buy risky companies. I'm doing everything I can to buy this and buy that. I'm just, I'm patient. I'm dollar cost averaging appropriately. I have a 
large cash position that is more than the equity position I have in my portfolio right now. So I, you know, just be very clear here with people listening, right? I am majority cash at this moment, um, but I just, I just don't see us out of the weeds just yet. Gotcha. Thanks for breaking that down. I got one question left before, well, actually two questions left before we let you go. First question is in regards to the portfolio that you keep talking about, is that a monthly allotment that your dollar cost averaging in? If you're selling something, do you do that quarterly, monthly? How are you handling that? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, I'll answer the second one first as it relates to selling something. You know, I don't want to kind of judge my winners and losers on like a monthly or, you know, even two month basis, but on a quarterly basis, right. When I, I opened up this portfolio in, in October, so we're almost six months in at this point called, you know, five, five months, four months. Uh, and, you know, looking at this 3M position, it was a, a clear loser. And obviously if anyone listening right now, listen to the episode we did about 3M, um, you know, Daniel and I both know about the loss. So we know about a lot of headwinds that this company is facing. And at that point, it just, to me, made a lot more sense to say, listen, I'm going to cut this loss where it is. Thinking about the perspective of the bond market for a second, right? The six month is yielding 5.1 plus percent. It's like, would I rather just take that money and put it into something risk-free like bonds? Like that's a no brainer. I'd, I'd, I'd much rather do that than try and roll the dice here with 3M. So that's kind of how I um, kind of approach that. And, and from the perspective of a time horizon, Kind of rebalance thing. I think quarterly is fair. I think every quarter it's it's a good theme to just kind of look around and say, okay, you know, what is performing best? What is performing worse? Why is that happening? I I do this more uh, on a weekly basis because I'm kind of hyper obsessed about it, right? So um, if you follow and are you know subscribed to the Cash Flow Freaks, you'll see a portfolio update every Sunday sent your way. Uh, where I did an update on, um, you know, Adobe, and I did an update on uh, Home Depot, as well as uh, Union Pacific Corporation. And I talked about obviously what had happened with uh, the derailment in Ohio. And then um, the day after I published that, the CEO stepped down and the stock went up 12% or something, right? But long story short here, I'd say is a quarterly basis is, is pretty healthy as it relates to rebalancing. The last question before I let you go, get out and out of here is where can people keep up with you? Where can they contact you? Where can they chat with you if they have more questions? So if you are all at all interested in learning more about the cash flowing or soon to be cash flowing companies that I'm investing into specifically, be sure to check out the cash flow freaks. It is a marketplace service on seeking alpha. Here's what you can expect. So every Monday morning, what my team does is we publish something called the week ahead. And what this is, is it's, it's a general update on what to expect in the markets that week. If it's specific names for earnings, if it's specific economic uh, news that's supposed to come out or investor relations. You know, we've got the Tesla thing coming out. I think that's tomorrow, right? So as it relates to the markets, what to expect from a high level going forward and my hot takes as to what I think is going to happen, right? So, you know, I gave some hot takes on hims and hers before the earnings came out. I gave some hot takes on um, Snowflake before their earnings and as well as Target. So, you know, that's what to expect on a Monday basis. And then on Sundays, what to expect is a good recap of everything that actually moved the markets. If it was specific earnings is where we dive deep. We show the charts, we share the position sizes, all that fun stuff. As it relates to uh, the economic reports, we dive deep on those. We give good quotes from other economists who have much more experience than myself to hopefully add some additional color. But then we also give you guys the play-by-plays on those investor uh, presentations and investor days. So I'm excited to, to uh, tune into Tesla's and, and give the play-by-play on that. And then um, on about a monthly, maybe bi-weekly basis really depends on how, because here's the thing, I am not a believer in posting content just to post content. Like I, I don't want to pitch a stock to you guys without having a, a full understanding of what that company is and why I'm excited about it. But normally every two to four weeks, you can expect a new stock pitch 
breakdown analysis, hims and hers and Academy sports and outdoors uh, was November's. And obviously we see how that did. Um, and so, you know, I, that's also what, what to expect. And then finally on uh, Monday nights, we host a live stream. So for about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the crowd and how long Q and A lasts, I'll sit down and uh, I walk through some, some prepared remarks as it relates to updates on the economy, a little bit about uh, maybe earnings that, that had happened uh, last week or give you guys maybe a preview as to what I'm working on as it relates to a stock pitch. And, uh, and yeah, it's just a fun time to connect with about a dozen or two uh, other people who are uh, subscribers. So really fortunate that you guys are here to listen to what I have to say and so open-minded about my ideas and looking forward to anyone and everyone's uh, perspectives and hot takes in the uh, Seeking Alphas marketplace of cash flow freaks. Well, I got to say, I mean, you've amassed a huge audience. I think uh, we all appreciate the analysis and the data and you taking the time to put all this content together. We always love talking to you here as well, getting the updates from you from your portfolio and elsewhere. And we're going to do it again here in a few months because that's what we do. We like to check in with you. We'll see if your mindset's changed, what you're recommending to people at this moment in time. I know. Can I, can I, can I just drop in just so I can say in, in three months from now that, that I said this on the, on, on the, uh, the record button here, Perion Network, Perion Network, P-E-R-I is a company that I'm very diving deep into right now. Essentially, long story short, is they have a strategic partnership with Microsoft Bing to pretty much be their exclusive advertiser uh, network. So if anyone wants to advertise on Microsoft Bing, right, chat GPT, all the fun stuff that they're going to see over the next six to nine months, if you want to advertise on Bing, you got to go through Perion Network. So they have a four-year, $800 million strategic partnership with them. And uh, I'm doing a lot of research in the company right now, but very excited about that. So hopefully in three months when we check back in, I will have some updates. So you're saying that research is going to drop soon. So people should check it out. That research is dropping uh, tomorrow. So yes. Oh, well, there you go. When you're hearing this podcast episode, it probably will already be out. So we're going to go ahead and make sure that we link in the show notes page as well as put those graphs up and everything else that you sent so that people can easily find that. Austin, thank you so much for your time. A lot of great information in this episode. I love what you're doing with the $2 million portfolio. And everyone, if you uh, have any comments about the episode, drop them on the show notes page. I'll jump in. I answer questions. Austin does as well. And we look forward to talking to you. Just a reminder, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you again next week with a new episode and a new guest.